Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 15. And we continue in our journey through this portion of John, which is known as the Farewell Discourse. The Farewell Discourse is designed to prepare Jesus' disciples for not only His imminent departure, but also for the apostolic ministry that they would begin to carry out in just a few short days. So the title of our passage here today, beginning in verse 18 and running through verse 25, is this. They love to hate. Each of us, in some form or fashion, have a desire. We have a need to be loved. We don't like it when somebody doesn't like us. We want to know the reasons why. We might even give ourselves over to correcting or changing or fixing those things. Some people have an obsession with being loved by everyone. They just can't find any joy or peace in their life knowing that someone in their sphere of influence does not love them. Some people say, I don't care who loves me. It doesn't bother me one bit. Well, that's a little bit too far the other direction. But you and I generally have a desire to be loved by other people. This is why we get married This is what we desire in our relationship with our spouse and with our children and with those that we call our friends is to love and to be loved. And yet, unfortunately, that is not the expectation that Scripture paints for us as the children of God. From the beginning of the church's formation that's recorded for us in the book of Acts, after the day of Pentecost, the church has been persecuted. In as early as Acts chapter 3, Peter preaches his first sermon. Thousands of people are saved. And as a result, Peter and John are thrown into jail. A short time after that, the phenomenal growth of the church creates such jealousy within the religious leadership that they arrest the apostles and they throw them in jail. In Acts chapter 6, Stephen was stoned to death because of his fearless preaching of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. After His death, there arose a general persecution of the church led by Saul of Tarsus that resulted in the imprisonment and in the death of unknown numbers of people. Paul himself, who once spearheaded this persecution, himself would be greatly persecuted throughout the entirety of his ministry. We were well acquainted with Paul's hardships and difficulties as an apostle as he sought to serve the Lord. It is recorded in history that all except the apostle John would die a martyr's death. He was exiled to the island of Patmos and was spared that very martyrdom. In the first century, Persecution was not only at the hands of the Jews, but that baton was eventually passed to the Romans. The Romans had perfected the art of brutality and of persecution, and they turned their focus on Christians. And this persecution that originated by the Jews was passed on to the Romans has continued throughout all of the churches. History. It is estimated that as many as 70 million Christians have been killed due to their profession of faith, and that nearly two thirds of those 70 million have died in the 20th century. It's estimated that since 1990, 100,000 Christians are killed every single year. 
Now here in America, we don't experience that kind of persecution. Martyrdom for your faith is unheard of. We're just not familiar with that. And we're a little bit sheltered from its reality and that kind of persecution. And though we don't see martyrdom in the United States, Christians are being persecuted for their faith and are often made specifics, specific targets for persecution. I came across this article that after the 2004 presidential election, there's an author by the name of Garrison Kyler, and while speaking on government-funded national public radio, he spoke in favor of a constitutional amendment to deny Christians the right to vote. He said, and I quote, I feel if your citizenship is in heaven, like a born-again Christian, you should give up your citizenship as an American. In essence, what he was saying is that Christians don't belong to us, they don't think like us, they don't vote like us, and so we should exclude them and persecute them from the right to vote. Now, when he made those remarks on national public radio... There was no punishment. There was no reprimand. Unless you were listening to it, you probably didn't even know that he said such a thing. But an individual like that could never utter those words against a Jew, a Muslim, a Hispanic, or any other demographic within our culture today. Could you imagine the uproar if he were to say those kinds of things about the homosexual community? Could you imagine what would happen if he said those things about the black population? He would have been ridden out of the country on a horse on fire. But you can say that about Christians and nobody even bats an eye. Now we could go on and on and on and identify in detail the kind of persecution that exists in America today against Christians. But that's not really the point and there's really not sufficient time for that. Hatred of Christianity exists in the United States to a much higher degree then most of us are even aware. And the reason that that is true is that you and I in our own little bubble-lived life don't experience it ourselves. We are sheltered from the reality of this animosity against Christians because we intentionally don't go to the front line of the battle. Why? Because that's where it's most fierce. Well, as Jesus prepared His disciples for His departure and for their apostolic ministry, He has reinforced several important themes that I want to take just a second to remind you of. This is what we've looked at over the last several weeks. One, to obey Him is to love Him. To love Him is to obey Him. They are to love one another in the same manner that He has loved them. They will bear fruit in the kingdom of God as they live out a life of obedience to Him. The Holy Spirit is going to come and help them to love and obey, to help them love one another, and to help them in the process of bearing fruit. All of what Jesus has said isn't a setup. It's all preparation. And so here, Jesus is going to prepare them for the inevitability of the resistance that they are going to face as they seek to love Him and obey Him and serve Him in the process of bearing fruit. Now you know as Christians, 
we could give ourselves over to this idea that since we are the children of God and we are making a concerted effort to make a difference for Him, that God is just going to kind of paint this rosy path for us to follow and there's not going to be any difficulty, there's not going to be any hardship, there's not going to be any obstacles, and all the world is just going to say, wow, what a great guy. That's not going to happen. And this is why Jesus is preparing them, is that they are going to be persecuted for their faith in Christ throughout the entirety of their apostolic ministry, and most of them are going to die as martyrs. Now, verse 17 is a transition between what we talked about last week and what Jesus is going to tell us this week. It concludes the previous discussion on loving one another as I have loved you, and it provides the segue for why it is so important that they have this agape kind of love for one another. Let's read together verses 17 through 25, 17 being the transition. This I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my Father also. Verse 24, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Now we're going to go through these verses and we're going to look at three major points as we kind of work our way through this. Number one is this. Hatred because of Jesus. They love to hate because of Jesus. Verse 18a, if the world hates you. That word if is not a causal if then. It is an assumption. It should be understood since the world hates you. When he says, if the world hates you, he is making in the Greek language a very positive assumption that the world is going to hate you. Believers will be hated. Now this is not the first time that Jesus has said this to His disciples during His earthly ministry. In Matthew 10.22, He says this, You will be hated by all because of My name. Now, This is fairly early in his ministry, and I would imagine that that pronouncement flew completely over their heads, and they all probably thought, well, he's not talking to me, is he? Surely not. All will hate you because of my name. The hatred that they will encounter gives them all the more reason why they have to love one another as Jesus loves them. Think about how important it is to have the love of the family of God when you are on the front lines of Christianity, when you're fearing for your life, when you're being threatened if you don't recant your faith, 
Where are my brothers? Where are my sisters who are going to love me through this great difficulty? You see, these guys were going to bear the Word of God through their talking, their teaching, their writing. They were going to be in the thick of it the entirety of their ministry and they needed to know the love they had from one another. Well, Jesus' intent is to prepare them for the persecution that they will face. He wants to eliminate the surprise factor. Do you like surprises? Well, it kind of depends on the surprise, doesn't it? You come home and your wife has fixed your favorite meal or your husband has finally finished that one project that's just been put off forever and forever. Your boss surprises you with a raise. Your kids surprise you with the announcement of the birth of your first grandchild. Boy, I like those kinds of surprises. But when I'm a child of God, expecting God's favor as I pursue God's destiny and the world hates me, I can't look at God's Word and say, well, where'd that come from? I didn't know anything about that. Jesus wants them to know. He doesn't want there to be any surprise. The world is going to hate you. Now, the world in this context refers to the evil, fallen world system that is comprised of unregenerate people. It speaks of the world's values, its philosophies, its ways, its priorities, its principles, etc., etc. Who is the ruler of this world? Well, we know who the ruler of this world is. Jesus would tell us in John 12:31 that eventually the ruler of this world will be cast out. So we know that the rule of Satan dominates the lives of the unsaved, and we'll talk just a little bit more about the world in just a couple of moments. Well, believers will be hated, and here's what we need to, re- we need to remember, is they hated Jesus first. Know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, do you like when someone says, hey, we got this big problem, but I know it's not your fault? Man, I'm so relieved. When the boss says, hey, I need to see you in my office, if the principal calls you into his office and you're sitting there thinking, okay, what's going to happen? I'm about to get hammered. You love to hear the words, it's not your fault. Right? You're not responsible. I don't hold you responsible for this. Well, when the world hates us, when it persecutes us, and if it martyrs us, we need to know it's not our fault. They hate us because they hated Jesus first. From the birth to the cross, the world has hated Jesus. Hated. Herod's attempt to kill him by ordering the murder of all male Jewish boys under the age of two in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas. That's how Jesus' life began in this world with the king seeking him out in order to kill him. In John 5.16, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because He was healing on the Sabbath. In John 5.18, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him because He was breaking the Sabbath, calling God His own Father and making Himself equal with God. In John 7.32, chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize Him. In John 8.59 and 10.32, they picked up stones to throw at Him. In John 11.47-53, they plotted to kill him. Just as the world hated Jesus, the world will also hate those who identify with him and live for him, 
choosing to live by the absolute truth of His teaching. When the world shows up on your doorstep and begins to hate on you, you got to know they hated Jesus first. Number two in our outline, this hatred, they love to hate because of difference. Verse 19a, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. You know, difference is a key ingredient to so much of the hatred we see in our world. Your skin's different from mine. I don't think I like you. You talk with a funny accent. I don't think I like you. You think differently than I do. I don't think I like you. You enjoy different things than I do. I don't think I like you. Difference is one of the key ingredients and so much of the hatred that exists in our world. Well, hatred is because of difference. The world will love its own. The self-centered, man-exalting, sin-permissive world loves those who think like they do. And when you think, when you act, when you live like the world, you've just diffused so much of the hatred potential in your life. Now, the three primary characteristics of the world's systems, of its philosophies, that are born out in the lives of people is given to us by the same Apostle John in 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, that is in the system of the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So as we look at the world system, we see letter A, the lust of the flesh. By the way, as you think back to the Garden of Eden... And as you think about the entrance of sin into the world and the fall of mankind, and you think about these bullet points here, oh my goodness, it makes an awful lot of sense. Well, the lust of the flesh has to do with feeling and touching and tasting and smelling and hearing and seeing. It's the idea that more is never enough. One piece of cake is pretty good. Two must be better, right? It's what we see, it's what we taste, it's what we feel, and that gives birth to the desires and the urges that are deep down in our sinful nature. Well, the problem comes when the flesh desires something that is directly forbidden by God, and what does the world say? Well, I reject that. I disagree with that. That's not sin. That's not wrong. One of the saddest things that I have heard as a pastor, is an engaged couple who says, well, we really love each other, and so premarital sex isn't wrong. We think God's okay with that. Really? And why do you think that? Because I do. Well, what does God's Word say about that? Yeah, but that's antiquated, isn't it? That's old. That's not relevant to today. So you have the lust of the flesh. Let it be you have the lust of the eyes. The eyes have to do with seeing and wanting to have what one sees. The problem comes when the eyes desire something 
It is directly forbidden by God. You know, the downfall of King David's life was he looked upon something that he was not supposed to have and it gave birth to the lust of his flesh. He desired something that he wanted so badly and it was so beautiful and it was so right in his mind at the moment that it began the downfall of his life. Well, the problem comes when the eyes see something that is directly forbidden by God and it is at that moment that we have to make a choice that we honor God in His Word or we give in to the desires and the urges in order to satisfy the lusts of our flesh. Let us see the pride of life. The pride of life is built around self-centeredness, a life that is focused on self, a life that wants to be noticed for all the wrong reasons. It wants attention. It wants honor. It wants power. It wants fame. It was once said in the not-too-distant past that the chief goal of the vast majority of teenagers was fame. They wanted to be recognized. They wanted to be adored. They wanted all the money. They wanted all the influence that came along with that. Folks, that is the system of the world. It is the pride of life. A life of self-sufficiency. A life of arrogance. A life of boastfulness and conceitedness. A feeling of superiority. A life that desires independence from anybody who might rule some kind of authority over top of me. Well, what you and I need to know as we battle the system of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life, is that our battle isn't with the people who are captured by the world system, but it is with the system itself that which dominates them. Ephesians 6.12 For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We must remind ourselves that you and I are in the midst of a serious and a significant spiritual battle. Some of which is determined by our connection to the system of the world. The more we break free from the system of the world, the more intense the spiritual battle is going to come into our lives. Oh, well, I don't want the battle. I, I didn't sign up for the battle. I just wanted to go to heaven. I just wanted to see this God. I just wanted to have a life that was different from what I had. I don't want a battle. I don't want a persecution. I don't want martyrdom. I just want to be left alone doing my own thing, right? Well, those who share in the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life love those that are like them. The problem is we are not like the world. Our values, our morals, our priorities are radically different from the world. For example, the leaders in the anti-abortion movement are generally Christians and the world considers them as radical extremists. If you believe that a, a baby in the womb of a woman is sacred and precious and that life should not be taken out willy-nilly because I don't want to have a baby and you want to restrict access to that, you're a radical extremist in the eyes of the world. Those who, who are opposed to homosexuality are generally Christians and they are called intolerant and bigots. 
Those who resist promiscuity are generally Christian, and they're considered antiquated prudes. The world loves those that are like them, and in contrast, it hates those who aren't. You know, it's really interesting that from the beginning of the 1990s, the world specifically, and Christians secondarily, have been bombarded with the homosexual agenda. In the 1990s, more than two-thirds of evangelical Christians said homosexuality is wrong, it's condemned in the Bible, and that should have no place in the life of a Christian. Well, here we are some 30 years later, and nearly two-thirds of evangelical Christians today say, what's the big deal? You have a right to live your life the way you see fit, and I have no grounds to condemn your decision. That's how quickly things have changed in our culture. Well, we are different. Verse 19, But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Rather than our joining in the world's pleasure, we are to stand opposed because we are not of the world. We are to align ourselves with Christ, with the absolute truth of the Bible. We are not to make it something that is relative. We're not to reduce its authority over our lives in any way, shape, or form. But we are to give ourselves to its truth because we are different. We are not of the world. Hatred from the world is realized through our differences. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We have an absolute idea about what is right and what is wrong. We have an understanding of what is righteousness and what is unrighteousness. Believers are to stand apart from the world as an indictment against it. Ephesians 5.11 Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness but instead, even expose them. I heard this term when I was in college, and it says, says something like this. The world is compromised because there are far too many tinfoil Christians. They simply reflect the people that are around them. When they're in the church, they talk the talk. When they're in the world, they walk that walk. You and I are to reflect the righteousness of Christ regardless of the environment that we find ourselves in. Is that easy to do? Oh, no, it's not. This is why Jesus said, I'm going to send you a helper so that you will love me and obey me and love one another and bear fruit in the kingdom of God. Well, the world hates the differences that exist between us and them, and they perceive them as a threat to their way of life and to their well-being. Why do you think so many in the U.S. are up in arms because President Trump has just appointed a conservative Supreme Court nominee? If you've read the headlines over the last week or so, it sounds like this nomination 
and the likely appointment of this judge is going to lead to the darkest days that the United States has ever experienced. Why? Because there's going to be six conservative judges on the bench to the three liberal ones. Oh my gosh, what is going to happen? Life as we know it is going to come to an end. We hate that difference and we're going to do everything we can to prevent that from happening. So why is there such great animosity over President Trump's nomination? Because her beliefs are contrary to the system of the world. You know, for the last... Well, I read this, that uh, this will be the most conservative Supreme Court since the 1930s. And we have 90 years of what has been a liberal, biased Supreme Court. And the expectation is, well, that's never, ever going to change. It's always going to be this way because that's the way the majority wants it. That's what we like, what we're comfortable with. We don't like the difference. So we are different. And because we are different, persecution is coming. Verse 20a, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, Jesus first used this phrase, slave is not greater than his master, in John chapter 13. And he said that after he washed the feet of the disciples. The principle of humility and service that was exemplified in his washing of their feet is applied to the certainty of persecution. In other words, what Jesus said was, if I wash your feet, you should wash one another's feet. If I am going to be persecuted, then you are going to be persecuted also. Those who live in conformity to the life and the teaching of Jesus, walking with Him, living for Him, serving Him, standing for Him, can anticipate, can be certain of, the same kind of antagonism that he himself received. When we stand unapologetically opposed to the world system, we will be persecuted. People don't like persecution, so many will avoid it at all costs. This is probably the primary reason why Christians have such little impact in the world is that we don't want to rock the boat and we're content to reflect as little of Christ as we can safely get away with. Because my life is difficult enough. It's got enough hardship in it. I don't want to add to it by having these people and that group and my boss and those people begin to express hatred towards me. I just can't handle that. I can't do that. You know, sadly, when we came to Christ and we recognized something about His grace and His mercy and His love and we saw our need for what it really was and we jumped at the opportunity to become a child of God, there weren't any exemption clauses that you and I had the opportunity to sign. Right? When we came to Christ, we signed a blank contract I am going to live for you. And as we live our lives, God fills in that contract as the loving Father who desires to see us conformed to the image of a Son, and sometimes that's going to bring to us persecution. So persecution is coming, but not by all. 
verse 20b, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Now, while the majority of the world is opposed to Jesus and his followers, not all are. This is interesting to think about. You can have a fairly safe conversation about quote-unquote God in the world, and it probably isn't going to be a big deal. You might have some differences in terminology and it might mean something different than you think they might mean. You can talk about God, right? But you start talking about Jesus and that changes everything, right? If you are a follower of Jesus, the majority of the world is going to be opposed to you. Now, some are going to come to faith in Christ and some are going to keep His Word through the teaching of the disciples. And so what Jesus is telling them is that although you will be hated by most, not all are going to hate you. Some are going to observe my teaching as you share it with them. And that should bring to them an immense amount of joy knowing that they are not entirely alone as followers of Christ, that they are not going to give their lives to some futile effort, that fruit will come from their lives because some are going to keep Jesus' word because of them. Now, number three in our outline, the big number three here, they love to hate. Hatred is because of ignorance. Verse 21, But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. Well, the hatred because of ignorance is based upon the reality that they don't know God. They might think they know God, but in reality, they don't know God. The world is deceived in its concept of God and what it means to have belief in God. Even the Jewish people, God's chosen people, didn't know the Father well enough to be able to recognize His one and only Son when He stood in their midst for three and a half years and did things that nobody else has ever done. The things Jesus did, the miracles He performed, had to be attributed to the power of a deity. And God's own people looked at Him and said, you're not it. Why? Because they didn't know the Father. Jesus didn't fit their mold. He didn't fit their expectations. He didn't fulfill the desires that they had. And as a result of that, they rejected Him. So the unregenerate world believes in little g God. They believe Him to be the one who fulfills their earthly desires and their lusts. And when these are not fulfilled in the manner that they were expected, then God is lacking and God is insufficient, and I don't have a need for that God anymore. Man's idea of God is that of a supreme God-grandfather who protects and provides and gives no matter what a person's behavior is, except for those that they might consider to be really, really bad. You know, the Hitlers, the Ted Bundys of the world, surely God's not going to provide for them. Even a grandfather wouldn't do that. The world believes that the Supreme Grandfather will accept them and work all things out in their favor and the final analysis, because after all, I'm a pretty good guy. When you introduce difficulty and hardship and pain and suffering, the world questions the existence of God or the love of God. Have you ever heard that? How could a loving God allow something like that to happen? 
had this big debate over 9-11 when the Twin Towers fell. Some people in the Christian community said that's God's judgment on America that has turned its back on Him. Well, I don't know if that's right or not. Could be, could not be. But there were so many in our country who said, how could a God, if He exists, allow something like that to happen? Those countries who believe that America is a Christian country were in the streets celebrating and shooting their guns and having a great party because America was brought low. They think we're all Christian. They hate us. We're infidels. So when the world has their idea of God, when that bubble is burst, then they begin to question the existence of God or the love of God. So when the concept of God's righteous anger or God's justful wrath is brought up, the world cringes with thoughts of unfairness or meanness. God is unfair when He allows these things to happen. God's just being mean when He allows those things to happen. So they ask the question, how could the God that we have constructed in our minds ever allow something like this to happen? That's, that's the problem. You've constructed a God in your own mind who's not anything like the God of the Bible. You don't know God. The Bible clearly proclaims that God is both loving and just. God loves us, but God demands righteousness from us. The world, of course, rebels against this concept of God, and so they reject the God of the Bible with all of its absolutes and its clear and complete revelation of who God is. They don't know God. Even if they think they know God, they have no excuse. Verse 22, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Now it's very important that we understand what Jesus is and isn't saying here. Jesus isn't saying that the Jewish people and people, are, and people in general were without sin until He came. What He's talking about here is the sin that is being referenced is the sin of rejecting Him. And by rejecting Him, they have rejected this God that they think they know. Those that have been exposed to the teaching of Jesus, those that have seen Him and heard His teaching, and they've seen His miracles, they are without excuse in their rejection of Him. But that is not just for the Jewish people of Jesus' day. It is for all people because Jesus is the very incarnation of God. His works are God's works. And His words are God's words. And His life and His ministry and the subsequent lives and ministries of His disciples very clearly proclaim to the world who this God is and how you can know Him and what is the consequence for rejecting Him. You go back and read Romans chapter 1 beginning in verse 18 when Paul, goes on, when Paul goes on and on and on about how the world is without excuse because God has made Himself known in this physical world. Well, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through Him. He is one with the Father. Verse 23, He who hates Me hates my Father also. Now, try having that conversation with a Muslim. 
Try having that conversation with a Hindu. Try having that conversation with someone in a cult who accepts an idea of God, about God, or a prophet of God. But this whole Jesus conversation, I'm not so sure about that. Well, if you hate Him, Jesus, then you hate the Father. If you reject Jesus, then you have rejected the Father. There is an inseparable link between Jesus and the Father, and this is what he's articulating again in John's account of Jesus' life. So Jesus continues to reinforce with his disciples because he wants them to know it isn't them that the world hates, it isn't them that the world is going to persecute, it is him and the Father. Hatred of Jesus is hatred of the Father. Verse 24, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned, but now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. Jesus is repeating the same thing that he said in verse 22. Here he is adding the hatred of the Father as an inseparable link to hatred of himself. He emphasizes that his ministry has shown them who he is, and who the Father is. This revelation of the incarnation of Christ and the rejection of it is sinful and this sin of rejection is expressed as hatred towards Jesus and hatred of the Father. So this brings back to mind the idea that to love Jesus is to obey Him and to obey Him is to love Him. To hate Him is to disobey Him seen primarily through rejecting him, and disobeying is hatred or rejection of him. So when Jesus is talking to his disciples about to love me is to obey me, the contrast of that is just as true. To disobey him is to hate him. And to hate him is to hate the Father along with him. But not only of Jesus, but also of the Father, this hatred this hatred was predicted. Verse 25. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. And this is really one of the interesting things that I believe Jesus says in this passage of Scripture. This is directed primarily at the Jewish people. They have rejected me. They have hated me in order to fulfill what is written in their very own law. Law here is not just the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The law here is a reference to the entirety of the Old Testament. The rejection of Jesus by the religious leaders, by those who posed as champions of the law, were fulfilling the prophecy concerning the enemies of God's servants. So here you have the religious leaders who believe them to be the experts and the law of God, and they were living out the kind of response to Jesus that the enemies of God were to live out. How ironic is that? God's people were rejecting God's one and only Son. When Jesus says this hatred without a cause, He is most likely quoting out of Psalm 69.4, which is widely understood to be not only a psalm of David, but a psalm that is just filled with messianic implications. It says in Psalm 69.4, Those who hate me without a cause 
are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. Now, in David's life, the revolt of Absalom against David brought about an immense number of enemies that were totally without any cause. David did not really do anything to merit the revolt against him by his son Absalom. In the same way, the revolt of the world against Jesus is without cause, and more specifically, the rejection of His own people, which is fulfillment of the prophesied law, is even more unjust. So Jesus' use of this verse applies the truth that was real to David, it's real to his own life. The enemies of Jesus are more than the hairs on our heads. It's more than the collective hair on all of our heads because the world hates Jesus. Their hatred is unjust. The Jews hate Jesus without any justifiable reason other than He didn't fit their expectation. He violated the Sabbath. He had the audacity to heal people on the Sabbath day. How could God do such a thing? God would never do that. Doesn't God know that we have made the Sabbath into something He didn't intend? Oops, we didn't know that, did we? That's the problem. They have a construct of God that is inaccurate. And that breeds to beliefs and lifestyle decisions that are inconsistent with who God is. Well, the world hates and opposes the one true God because the world is insistent upon living, thinking, doing exactly as they desire without anybody telling them that they're wrong. Not even the God of the universe can challenge those who are captured by the system of the world. When we are hated by the world because we unashamedly stand for His truth and live by it, we must be resolute in our understanding of why we are hated. We are hated because the world hates Jesus. As we stand against the world by standing for Jesus, we would do well to remember these words from Jesus Himself. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, when you and I have this obsessive desire to be loved, to be appreciated, to be celebrated by the enemies of God, we've got a problem. When their attention, their affection means more to us than living a life for the Lord Jesus Christ, we've got a problem. We should be able to go into school. We should be able to go into work. We should be able to go into our civic organizations. We should be able to go into our communities and not give a rip that they don't love me because of my stand for Jesus. But the numbers of people who will live a life like that are few and far between. We don't like persecution. We don't like hardship. We don't like the suffer. And I understand that. I don't like it either. 
But at some point, the church of God has to stand for the truth of God to make the impact in the world that God desires and intended for us. Think about this. In the 1960s, when prayer was removed from the public school, and when God in the public square was thought as being inappropriate, where was the church? When the homosexual agenda exploded through the 90s in the early 2000s, where was the church? Shh, who are we to tell them how to live? What's coming in the next generation? Oh my gosh, I can't even begin to imagine what this next generation is going to look like. You know, the pendulum swings. We don't know how far out it goes. And we don't know what it's going to take to cause that pendulum to swing back. But I can promise you this. If the church continues to be silent and to sit on the truth, the world is going to continue to spiral further and further and further away from any semblance of the Christian nation that was once founded in the pursuit of religious freedom. Pray with me, would you please? Father, this is a great challenge for all of us. And more times than not, we are weak and unwilling to stand in the gap for the cause of Christ. I'm included in that category. God, I pray that you would birth within our hearts a desire to live for you in such a way that the world would notice and our difference would be attractive to them in the sense that they they see a great joy and a great peace and a great sense of fulfillment in living out this life for you. It doesn't mean that we can be brash and we can beat people over the heads with the truth of the Bible, but we are to speak the truth in love, showing them your love, praying that we would be a conduit that you would use to help them understand your love that through our consecrated lives to you, you would privilege us with seeing fruit born in us and through us. God, you have given each of us a capacity to make an impact in this world. I pray that we would not only trust you, but we would continue to learn how to lean on you, how to depend upon you, how to cling to you, like the branch does to the vine, so that you can do the work in us and through us that you desired to do from the foundation of the world. God, would you have your will and your way in every heart and every life? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship him.